Good afternoon, everyone. It's really nice to be here. It's nice that Rich gets to offer boxing classes or something at this fundraiser. Guess what I'm doing? I'm baking a cake. Yeah. I'm so manly. It's unbelievable. Um, it's great. To, what's that? Do I get Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah maybe. Anyway, uh, great to be here. Is everyone all right? I feel like we're a little bit flat tonight. Everyone all right? Okay, great. Uh, perhaps it's just my jokes are bad. Um, we'll get praying in a moment. If we've not met, my name is Matt Hatch. I'm one of the leaders here. And you've come, actually, you've joined us right at the end of a series uh, that we've been looking at in the Bible called How Culture Disciples Us. And normally we would preach through sort of Bible verses. This is much more seminar style, so there's going to be a bit of interaction. It's a little bit different from normal. But the idea is this. We believe that... Um, uh, lots of things try and influence and shape our lives and you need to decide in life who you want to be influenced by the most and if you do nothing then I can guarantee you that our culture will disciple you will influence you and shape you or you can stand back and say I want to be influenced by something specific or someone specific and for Christians that person is Jesus Christ And over the course of this series, we've seen a couple of things. Firstly, we've looked at um, iceberg issues. And the the issue is this. Whatever you see on the outside of someone's life, above the waterline, is not as important as what is going on below the waterline. And the iceberg's very small on top, but very big underneath the waterline. And so... The idea is that our lives are shaped by what's going on at a deeper level, a hidden level, in the heart. And all your behaviour flows from your heart. And we've also looked at a model of, uh, if you like, a spiritual map, a way of understanding how God changes our lives. Uh, It's a spiritual map that's taken from Jeremiah 17. And we spent a long time on this. And I just want to do a little summary for you. This, uh, from Jeremiah 17, shows a picture of two types of trees. You've got uh, on the left a thorny tree, and you've got on the right a a fruitful tree. And the idea is they represent two sorts of lives. They represent a person who's a disciple maker, who's a disciple of Jesus, and they lead a fruitful life, and one that is trusting in themselves, turning away from God. And they're like a tree producing thorns. And we saw that both trees have several things in common. Firstly, there's heat, which is symbolic of life circumstances shining down on both of the trees. Both trees feel the heat of the sun, but only one thrives while the other struggles. Verses 6 and 8 of uh, Jeremiah 17 tells us that the fruitful tree doesn't fear when the heat comes. Heat represents our life circumstances, all with its blessings, its challenges, its difficulties and temptations. And the idea is this, heat in our lives can either cause us to grow or it can scorch us. It's dependent on where you're putting your roots and the effect that it's having on your hearts. Secondly, you have roots, all trees have roots and and the tree roots represent how you feed Both trees have roots which describe how they grow. The roots are the means of drawing life and strength. And for the Christian, they're things like prayer and community and Bible reading and worship. 
Where do the roots go? Well, the roots go into the stream. Can you see the stream? And the stream represents what we trust in terms of God and the Bible. Verse 5 of Jeremiah 17 tells us that the thorn bush draws strength from everyone but God, whereas the fruitful tree, verse 8, extends its good roots into the stream. The stream of water, which across the Bible is symbolic of Jesus, the Bible, and the power of the Spirit, thinks Psalm 1. And the idea is this, none of us can change our own lives, just in our own strength. Uh, The way Christianity views transformation is that it's not just about being more positive, it's not just about changing yourself, it's not just about being the better you, but rather someone stronger, someone more real, someone with more power has to enter into your heart for you to experience something greater. And that person obviously is Jesus Christ for us Christians. And then you have the wasteland, and this is when the thorny tree produces roots and they go into the wasteland. What do we trust? Well, it's anything but God. It's ourselves. And it's called a wasteland because it is dead there. It's a dead end. If you find yourself in the wasteland, there is nothing to feed on that will provide transformation. And then you've got the heart. Both trees have a heart. And the heart in Scripture is the place of transformation. And the battle in disciple making is not for behaviour, it's for the heart. Verses 9 and 10 of Jeremiah 17 show us this again, that the heart is where all behaviour comes from, under the waterline of the iceberg. The heart describes us, the real you. And it's the heart that Jesus transforms first, and then our behaviour flows from it. We're nearly there. Then you've got the thorns, which are representative of our sinful responses. One tree is thorns that represent our ungodly responses to life. Thorns come when our hearts don't trust in Jesus. And they tend to be external indicators of what is going on in our hearts. And then you've got the fruit. And the fruit is symbolic of the life of a disciple maker. A fruitful tree represents what a disciple of Jesus looks like. Loving Jesus, becoming more like him and helping others to do the same. Includes the fruit, the spirit, good works, living for God. And so um, I, I, I hope for those of you that have been around for the last few weeks, you're familiar with this now. For those of you that are new, you've never seen this before, let me just show you from real life how this works. So until they moved, I had uh, to put up with some very, very difficult neighbours. Um, where we live in West Park, um, since we'd moved in for probably a two-year period, we'd have them regularly shouting at us, banging on walls, staring up at us, being fairly passive-aggressive, uh, being really rude to our kids. And so to put this on... Uh, this little diagram, the heat in my life was what? Nasty neighbours. My roots, well my roots were spending too long dwelling on revenge. And I like to be honest from the front at church, but I can't tell you what I was thinking in terms of revenge. Um, Honestly, it's so bad what went through my mind at various points. And because my roots spent too long dwelling on my revenge, I ended up in the wasteland. And in the wasteland, I started to believe this lie, that I'd only be happy if they moved or they got what they deserved. In my heart, what was going on is I was believing that they've got no right to treat me like this. 
And the thorns, what came out, what my family got to see, what, what all I got to see, was hatred, imagined violence, a lack of peace and anxiety. If I wanted to be a fruitful tree, if I wanted to change the way that I was interacting with my neighbours, well, I needed roots that went a different way, roots of prayer and confession and getting into scripture and changing my thinking. My roots would find the stream and in the stream I'd find some really helpful truths from the Bible that would help me deal with people that were my enemies. And perhaps one truth would be that God loved me while I was still his enemy and therefore that can empower me to love those that are my enemies. And the fruit, what would that look like? Well, I hope it would be Christ-likeness, a prayerfulness and also compassion. So does that make sense, everyone? Everyone's sort of with me so far. That's the picture, like a spiritual map, of how God transforms us from within. So this is what I want to do today in our final chapter on looking at transformation. I want to tackle the thing that I come across all the time in discipleship, but it rarely gets talked about at church. And this is the whole area of coping. It has a massive impact on whether or not people change. Now usually we think of coping as a really positive thing, and it actually can be. It all depends on what you're trusting in. So (coughs) if you look uh, at the diagram, uh, could we just go back just a couple of slides to the diagram? There you go. Um, Coping is a root. It's a way of feeding. It's a way of dealing with the stuff that's going on in your heart. It's a way of dealing with situations that lead you to either trust in God or trust in yourself. So positively, there are some really good coping mechanisms out there that help you if you're struggling with things like anxiety or depression or fear or eating disorders or stress or worry. Uh, You need good coping strategies, prayer, Bible meditation, honesty, support, maybe counselling. They're not only good, but they're crucial to the heart changing and making you sort of helping you get through those very real struggles. However, I have found that most people use coping strategies to do the opposite and to ignore God and to trust in themselves or, the, or things to help them. So, for example, I was chatting to a woman who works for the council and she is ultra busy at work at the moment. So she is feeling pressure from work to, to just work endless hours to get the job done. So the heat in her life is sort of the pressure of work. How that's sort of manifesting itself on the outside, the thorns are things like stress and unhappiness. She is really unhappy right now. What's going on in the heart? Well, in her heart, she needs comfort and strength and hope because she's having to work so hard. But instead of using that route to go to the stream and find it from God, she's coping. So her route is coping and she's going to the wasteland. And in the wasteland, what she's, uh, what she's finding is a pattern of avoidance. So she just doesn't want to talk about it, to be honest. That's her way of coping. She also loves to escape the worry that's always with her. And her escape mechanism is sleep. It's like, if I just sleep lots, then I don't have to worry about it. 
And what she really wants sort of in her heart is comfort because she doesn't get any in the workplace. So for her, it's the odd glass of red wine in the evening or two or three. So I hope you see that coping and poor coping mechanisms is a poor substitute for the transformation that Jesus offers us. Coping mechanisms are what we do when we take life into our own hands. When we say, God cannot or will not change this area of my life, or I don't want him to change this area of my life, so I cope by avoiding issues, by protecting myself, I build a wall of safety around me, I pretend, or I turn to other things instead of God. So where's this in the Bible? Where is coping in the Bible? Well, as soon as you start to sort of label it, you see it everywhere. Um, One thought would be to go to 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 to 5. We've got it on the screen. And it says this, for, the wep- uh, for though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not weapons of this world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So it's a little bit confusing this, but Paul is talking about how we fight, if you're a Christian, how we fight spiritually. (coughs) Excuse me. And how we grow and live for Christ. And so in verse 4, he talks about weapons that we have at our disposal to to tear down the strongholds in our life. And strongholds, according to the, the Bible, are sort of a way of thinking, a personal attitude that... Um, it can set itself up against God. It can be sort of quite an idolatrous thing, but it's a thing that is used to pull us away from God. And we're told to fight against them using weapons such as prayer and promises in the Bible and meditating on scripture and fasting, sinking our roots into the stream. And wonderfully, Paul says, those things are really important because they have divine power to set us free. But then he sort of says in verse 5, he gives this this other category of things that we must demolish to keep growing. Verse 5, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. So this is an interesting category. It's clearly linked to strongholds, demolishing strongholds. But it's another category. So what is it? Well, a pretension is a claim or an assertion that has doubtful value. A pretension is a claim or assertion that has doubtful value. So it's a bit like a lie, but it is pretending to be something that it isn't. So it's more like a plausible lie. So for example, I could tell you that I am the women's world champion at figure skating. And for those of you that are sharp in the room, you know that that is a lie. It's fairly obvious that's a lie. But if I told you that recently I won the over 40s competition at my local squash club, then you may believe me because it's a plausible claim. It hasn't actually happened, but in my mind it could. And I know you're thinking, that guy doesn't look over 40, so it must be a lie. (laughs) But, a plausible lie. It looks like it could be true, but it is not true. 
And so coping in life is a plausible lie or a pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of Christ. It, it claims or looks like we're doing the right thing and it even feels like we're doing the right thing but it's actually a route that leads us away from fruitfulness. So let me give you an example. I was chatting to someone a few years back and they had to do a best man speech at a wedding. And they told me that what they were feeling in their heart was fear. And if you've ever done a best man speech, it is a nervous, nerve-wracking thing. You've got to be funny. You, you know, you've, there's a lot of pressure. And so I was like, in my disciple-making mode, I'm like, what are you doing to deal with that fear in your heart? And I said, what are you doing? And he said to me, well, actually, because I'm so scared of presenting in front of people, what I've done is I've memorized it word for word. And so when I get up there, I'll just be able to do it. My nerves won't kick out. I'll just be able to get through it that way. And I said to him, I mean, that's great that you'd go to such lengths, you know, for the guy getting married. But can you see that that is coping? It's a plausible lie. It's something that looks good and shiny on the outside. But it doesn't deal with the heart. You're coping through memorising a speech. If you were truly dealing with your fear, then you'd be fighting fear with faith, not just trying to up your game so no one can tell that you're really scared. Does that, that make sense? So it's quite difficult to spot, actually, a plausible lie. So where do you see it in the Bible? Well, let me just give you two examples really quick. Number one, think of Peter, Matthew 26. Jesus has been arrested So he's just about to go to the cross. And he's followed at a distance by Peter, who's one of the disciples. And suddenly people are asking Peter about whether or not he knows Jesus. Do you know him? Are you one of his followers? So what does Peter do when he's asked whether he knows Jesus? What's he do? He denies him. Why does he deny him? What do you think? He's scared. He's fearful of being arrested. He's fearful of what's happening to Jesus will happen to him. So what is the coping strategy? Denial, lying, trusting in his own ability to remain safe. He's coping. Or take Martha in Luke 10. Jesus comes to the house of Mary and Martha and Mary drops everything to spend her time with Jesus. However, Martha carries on doing all the housework, which is a good thing. But why does she not spend time with Jesus and spend time doing the housework? What do you guys think? Why is she doing the housework and not spending time with Jesus? What's going on? Yeah, I wonder. I wonder if she was keeping up appearances. I wonder if she felt she should remain busy. Any other suggestions? What's that? Fear Fear of... So I think it could be that. Fear of not being good enough. Jesus is in the room. The Son of God. There, There would be a mixed response going on the heart. You'd be desperate to be with him, but desperate to run away from him. We don't know. But what is her coping strategy? What is it? Busyness. Vicky, you said the same. Busyness. Ignoring Jesus. 
So the question is, how do you spot bad coping mechanisms if they're difficult to spot? Well, you spot them by looking at the thorns. You look at what they produce. Because every coping, bad coping mechanism, sinks its roots down into the wasteland. And what you'll find in the wasteland is unbelief, trusting in yourselves, an inability to actually change. And it will cause you to be disobedient or just avoid God altogether. So the way you recognise bad coping is what it does to your life. So coping is dangerous because it looks like you're okay. But actually nothing is happening to your heart. Coping is like a doorway. If you imagine like an old castle or an old door that's blocking entrance into a special room. And in this case, it's the door to your heart. Every time we cope, every time we trust in ourselves, we're closing that door to Jesus and his truth touching our inner parts, uh, touching our hearts. So I want you just to start to engage with this personally. And I want you to chat to the person next to you and I want you to answer this question. How do you think people cope in life? And I'm talking about bad coping mechanisms. How do you think people cope in life? Do you want to just turn to someone near you? Say hi to them if you don't know them. Hi, well done. How do people cope? Okay, if I can have you back again. So answering the question, how do people cope? Uh, How do your friends cope? Um, give me some answers. How do people cope? What's that? Humor. Humor. So joking around, making life situations. Deflecting off. Deflecting off yourself, not letting anyone see the real you. Glorifying Excellent. Your busyness. Glorifying your busyness. So making your life busy and then talking about that. Yeah. What? What's that? Burying your head in the sand. Totally ignoring it. Pretending nothing's wrong. What's the problem with that? That it's still there. And the more you ignore it, that bigger that thing gets. And the harder it is to finally confront it or change it or see it. How else do we cope? Oh, sorry, this good for you first. You throw money at it. You either throw money at your, like yourself, so you indulge yourself, or you throw money at it to fix it. Do you? I think sometimes at church we cope by that serving. Yes. I think that's what Martha did. I'm still Christian service, busying yourself, making sure your life is full, you're not changing but you're serving lots and everyone thinks you're brilliant because you're serving so hard but it's not touching your heart. Yeah, anything else? Controlling everything. everything. So you're trusting yourself, you're making it manageable, controlling it. I thought I had one over here. Yes. Wow, deep this one. So it's gone from it's gone from uh, coping by like feeding yourself, going shopping, retail therapy, that sort of thing, to actually feeding off others and like taking from them what you haven't got for yourself. Boy, oh boy. <laughs> okay, excellent. You're seeing what coping looks like. 
Turn to that same person. I want you to answer this question. What are the things that we are really doing when we use bad coping strategies? So what, when, when I eat too much chocolate, what, what's my heart really after in that? So do you want to just chat to the people around you? Not just answer it for me, uh, but for, for any coping that we do. What are some of the things we're wanting in our hearts? What are the deeper things? Okay, everyone, well done. Okay, let's have some feedback then. What's going on at a deeper level when we use these coping strategies? What's going on? What are we really looking for? Let's start with me. So a little bit of like public counselling. What am I after when I eat too much chocolate, when I'm feeling stressed or anxious? What's going on? Comfort. Comfort is massive in our society. We want to feel better. We want to feel good. And so we t- all of us go to many different things to get that hit of comfort. Whether it's shopping, whether it's people, whether it's chocolate. So that's me. What else? Acceptance. Sorry, here. Yeah. So acceptance. So perhaps you're very fearful of rejection and the thing that you're desperate for is acceptance from God actually that's the deeper thing water what's that yeah that's right so fear of dying is a massive one as well a lot it's very common actually as well and your coping mechanisms could be you totally ignore it or you let everyone know about it or you go to comfort things or you you can go all over the place with that what, what else is going on deeper in the heart? So we've got to add comfort, acceptance. Pleasure. What's that? Pleasure. Pleasure is similar to comfort, isn't it? But that's a, definitely a route that we use. What's that? Yeah, great. So we want to take God's place. We want to be there. So we, sometimes it's escape. That's what we want to do deeper down. Sometimes it's recognition. Sometimes it's joy, sometimes it's pleasure. So last question between yourselves. If you spend your time using bad coping mechanisms, what are the thorns it will produce in your life? Okay, can you just turn again? This is the last time. Those of you that use the coping strategy of ignorance are hating every moment right now. So turn to the person next to you. What... If you spend your time coping, what are the thorns that it will produce? What are the bad things that will come in your life? Okay, well done. So what are the thorns, everyone? What are some of the the bad things that bad coping mechanisms produce? Separation from God. Over-reliance on people or things. The Bible, when we really give ourselves to something, it's called idolatry. When we put anything before God, it becomes an idol for us. Yep, what else? Yeah, fear of your coping mechanisms being forcibly removed. (laughs) Wow, yeah, that's true. Someone else had one? What's that? Being possessive, yeah. Definitely. You, 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 you protect the things that give you comfort. You don't share your chocolate. It becomes daddy chocolate. It's all gushing out right now. <laughs> Whew, feels good. What's that? 
mood swings, you're unhappy, dissatisfied, many of you will become apathetic. You know, a big thing is, a lot of you will just give up. Like in terms of your Christianity and your desire to change and your desire to overcome the stuff that controls your life, if you're coping, you think you're doing it and so you're saying to God, I'm doing all this stuff and it's not working. And after a while, you can only do that for so long and you give up. But the the fact of the matter is your roots are not going to God. You remember, coping is that front door, that big door to your heart. And so to summarise, it's crucial that we spot bad coping because it leads us away from God. It's the gateway to the heart, so if you don't deal with it, you'll never experience the transformation that Jesus offers. And so much of what we must do with one another is help each other to unpick those bad coping mechanisms. To be brave enough to say to that person who's doing the best man speech, just hold on a sec, you know, it's great that you're doing that, but can you see that that's not going to change your heart? You see, half the battle in this is just seeing the coping itself. And I found time and time again, just sitting down with someone and helping them see where they're coping badly has a real power uh, just in itself. The Bible says it's almost like bringing something from the darkness out into the light. And by just even naming it for what it is, it, it seems to sort of take away some of its hiddenness, some of its power in our lives. And the beautiful thing is in this, if you're someone who copes in life, we believe as Christians that Jesus is bigger than your issues and also better than your idols. He's bigger than your issues and he's better than your idols. So two things practically and we'll finish. Number one, and there's a pattern to this, I've done every preach on this series, I've talked about this, but one, number one, What do you do when you leave this room? You've got to recognise. You've got to recognise what's really going on. Like where are you coping currently? Where are you trusting in yourself, not God? Where are you avoiding God? Or is there stuff in your life you've tried and you've failed and you've just given up and so you're coping instead? Like seriously, what is it for you? Where, Where are you coping? And so the first step is to recognise it, be honest, ruthlessly honest with one another and yourself. And then secondly, repent and believe. Repent and believe. Repentance is seeing where we're sinning and turning from it completely. It's a change of thinking. It's you looking at coping in your life and understanding what it actually produces in such a way that you hate it, where you've just got this thing in your heart that says, this is not what I've been called to live for. This is half-hearted Christianity. This is not what the Bible promises. And for you to look at it and hate it, And so you've got to hate it. If you don't hate the way that you're badly coping, then you'll just return to it again and again and again. And it's not that the things that you're using to cope are necessarily bad. It's how you're using them. Because they're they're making you trust yourself, not God. So that's repentance. It's making a U-turn. It's saying sorry to God. But then there's belief, and belief is about trusting that Jesus is enough for you at every level of existence. It's about trusting what the Bible says. It's about sinking those roots into the stream. And so the question to ask, if you are someone that copes, that recognises this is a moment and I'm just going the wrong way, 
that the way out, the way to sink your roots in to the right place is asking this, what do I need to believe about God and the gospel in this situation? What do I need to believe about God and the gospel in this situation? So let me just give you a couple of examples to finish. When I'm anxious about decisions that I have to make about the future, I battle unbelief with this promise from Psalm 32, where God says, I will instruct you and teach you the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. It's so intimate. It's so, it gives me such confidence that God knows my situation. And instead of trying to find my own ways to cope with the situation, I lean into that promise. Or when I'm craving comfort because the day has been hard and long, I battle coping with this promise from Isaiah 55. Why spend money on what is not bread and labour on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest of fare. You see, the reason I'm going to the chocolate, the reason I'm going to the clothes, the reason I'm going to whatever is that I, my soul is wanting to be satisfied. I want the richest of fare on my terms. And this psalm tells me that, oh sorry, Isaiah tells me that I need to go to God because God spreads a table before me. And on it he provides the richest affair, the very things that my soul craves, he offers me for free. Or here's like me being very honest with you. Um, When I'm desperate for acceptance, which is my thing, and tempted to cope, and my coping mechanism is to make myself more acceptable. The more acceptable I am, the more you'll accept me, and the more I'll avoid rejection. When I'm tempted to do that, I put my hope in the promise of Isaiah 49, which says this, Shout for joy, you heavens. Rejoice, you earth. Burst into song, you mountains. For the Lord comforts his people and will have compassion on his afflicted ones. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. And then God says this. If you feel rejected by God, by people, he says, can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. See, I've engraved you on the palm of my hands. Your walls are ever before me. God takes you and engraves your name my hands. Your walls are ever before me. God takes you and engraves your name on the palm of his hands. And when I'm lacking motivation and passion, and I'm tempted to cope by pretending or going through the motions... Again, I fight. I sink my roots into Colossians 1. And I pray this for myself. When my heart is weary, I pray Colossians 1. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord. That's my desire. That I live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. Bearing fruit in every good work. Growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience. And lastly, when I'm fearful and I want to give in to fear by trusting in my own ability to get through it, 
I put it to death by declaring 2 Timothy verse 1, 7. For God did not give us a spirit of fear, but of power and in love and self-control. So I am urging you to fight against bad coping mechanisms, to stop trusting yourself and ignoring God and fight, to take up the promises of God that are found in the Bible. To literally, as you open these pages, to ask the Holy Spirit to help you to lay up these promises in your heart and then battle on. Recognise where you cope and then repent and believe these precious promises. Amen? Amen. Do you want to stand with me? We're going to respond to God. We're going to sing. You know, I think this message... uh, tonight is one very much that you take home with you but in these moments we've got together it's a chance to call out to God for help it's a chance to call on God to meet with you it's a chance to repent it's a chance for you to say to God just in your own spirit I just I've had enough of just choosing an option that I know ultimately doesn't change me doesn't satisfy me and God is here by his spirit And when we confess our sins to him, he's faithful and just. He forgives our sins. He cleanses us from all unrighteousness. 